Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined by Steve Hyduke, who is a pastor here at a Methodist church in Texas. And we're going to be talking today about the Methodist tradition, uh, some of its beliefs and distinctives. So, Steve, thank you so much for being here and for doing the interview. Oh, thanks, Scott. I'm um, I'm mostly happy, a little apprehensive. It feels like a big responsibility to speak for all of Methodism, but I'll yeah. give it my best. Hey, I think you'll do just fine. So. I wanted to begin by asking you just sort of an overview. What is sort of the history of the Methodist tradition? Okay. Um, broadly, we are all the various Methodist groups of which I'm ordained in one uh, trace our heritage to John Wesley and Charles Wesley, uh, brothers, two of, I think, 13 brothers born in the early 18th century. Um, they were Anglican priests or at least I know John was, in, so in England, and they were very methodical in their efforts uh, to live their Christian faith, um, hence the name Methodist. It was, a, it, it was a, an insult when they started. They were students at Oxford, and they and a group of their friends, uh, they called themselves the Holy Club, but they were uh, branded as Methodists because they were so methodical in their efforts uh, to live out their faith in, in Jesus. Um, and this brought John, now an ordained Anglican priest, uh, to, a mission, to a missionary service in the colony of Georgia, from which he returned feeling a miserable failure because he, he, he didn't think that, it, well, he didn't feel like he'd done a very good job. He felt inadequate. On the way home, the ship uh, was heavily engaged in a storm, and he, with all the crew and most of the people on the ship, were cowered in fear. But there was a, another religious group, the Moravian Christians, that were having a praise service on the open deck in the midst of this storm. And Wesley decided he wanted to have that kind of faith. And so he found that kind of faith um, in a meeting with the Moravians in England and uh, had what we all call the Aldersgate experience. He wrote that he felt his heart strangely warm. From that time forward, um, he put his need or drive for methodizing everything um, to work in England and then, of course, in the colonies and in later the, the early United States. Um, so. Uh, our, our faith is very Anglican, so it's uh, traditionally high church and liturgical. High church and liturgical. Um, we're we're Protestant, uh, kind of through Henry VIII, and then by assumption through some Lutheranism and some Calvinism. I think what really identifies all the various Methodist groups is Wesley's um, heritage of needing the, the the Christian faith to be lived out. Mm -hmm. That as much as he was such an intellectual and actually had a, a stand built for his horse so he could read while he's riding horseback from town to town in England, so he could read almost constantly, uh, yet he's also responsible, some scholars say, uh, for, for leading the movement that saved England from the kind of revolution that France had because of all the, the hospitals and schools and work with 
with prisoners that Wesley and his followers um, felt, felt compelled to do in their efforts to live out their Christian life. Yeah, very good. Uh, I was actually in England a number of years ago when I was working on my PhD. Uh, and uh, I, so I had there. to do a little bit of study over there. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I went to uh, John Wesley's church. I went to his grave, okay. uh, which is at his church, uh, which is the way it is for most, you know, most graveyards right. in England are at churches. But um, uh, it was a beautiful sanctuary, and there were stained glass windows all around that sanctuary that had been there, I'm, to my understanding, from the time of Wesley. Uh, okay. Which is probably the case because most of the churches that are, you know, five, six hundred years old, <laughs> they're still the way they were. Right. But um, each stained glass window was a different story of scripture. And if you looked around the whole church, it went from creation to fall to, you know, covenant to covenant. And then by the end, you were looking at redemption on the on the other side of the sanctuary. Uh, but the beautiful sanctuary. And um, uh, I think that it's also said that a lot of uh, Puritan tradition sort of come out of uh, Wesleyanism and I think he was maybe um, influenced some by the Puritans but he didn't go the the legalistic route that they went uh, when he was um, in in school and was in the holy group and, right. and all that so yeah. uh, but uh, to the best of my knowledge uh, his experience uh, is where we get the whole idea of a conversion experience from today. Uh, wow. It's this, uh, okay. this idea that uh, you, know, you, you come to this point where you say, I need God to save me, mm -hmm. and I need to begin this relationship with him. And uh, the, the altar calls you see in Baptist churches and you know, other places, it really all goes back to, to John Wesley. Yeah, he had a tagline in a lot of his preaching uh, of inviting people um, to flee the wrath to come. <laughs> um, interestingly, though, because I, I can't argue with anything you've said, so he had this, this Aldersgate experience mm -hmm. that is generally referred to as his conversion. Mm -hmm. He also never referred to that again for the rest of his life in ministry. Um, which reminds me, uh, another, it's not quite distinctive, but it... it it, it puts us in, in a subgroup of Protestantism. We baptize babies, mm -hmm. um, but we also recognize believers' baptism, um, and we don't, we tend not to rebaptize. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, there's a story I remember that Wesley told that he was confronted by some people of, of the believers' Baptist tradition um, about his stance on on infant baptism and so they gave him this hypothetical well you you wouldn't expect somebody who was baptized as a baby to be able to count on that single experience when he's 30 years old to 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 hold his justification and wesley's response was no i wouldn't do that but neither would i expect someone who's baptized at 20 of his own free will to have nothing nothing between that experience and when he's 30 and count on that experience, mm -hmm. which um, I don't think it really argues between believer's baptism and infant baptism. I think it, it's more about his um, his insistence on the decision making a difference yeah. and bearing fruit be in one's growth. life. Yes. So yeah, as you as you grow in your faith, you hopefully become closer to the Lord, and you continue becoming more like Christ, and so. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, hopefully most Christians that are, you know, say 30, who were Christians at 20, don't look 
back and go, well, I haven't done anything in the last 10 years. Right, uh, right. So there, I'm sure there are some that do, but that's not, that shouldn't be the goal for anyone. Agreed. So, well, um, so speaking of infant baptism, yes. what are some of the other distinctive beliefs of the Methodist tradition? Okay. Oh, wow. You know, I, I, I expect this question, even gave it a lot of forethought, and now in the moment, um, I'm fumbling. Um, one that I think we're, we're known for, again, the challenge is distinctive because mm -hmm. I know just enough of church history that I know that, that not a single thing that, that Wesley said or taught or that identifies us now is like, we're the only ones who do this. Right. But, but one that, uh, that our tradition is, is well known for um, is identifying different uh, episodes or elements or kinds of grace, mm -hmm. um, namely, uh, especially provenient grace. I think this was um, Wesley's answer to to Calvin's to, to the extremes of Calvin's or extreme interpretations of Calvin's predestination. Mm -hmm. So provenient grace again, he Wesley didn't create this. He he got it from his wide reading. Um, is the idea that that none of our relationship with God is at our initiative. So it it it, it holds lovingly to. Calvin's uh, insistence on God's sovereignty, but that in God's sovereignty, God offers, extends grace to us so that even our first inclination uh, to turn to God isn't our initiative. It's mm -hmm. something that, that somewhere after that, we at least will see, oh, God was already at work here before I was. Yeah, um, yeah very good. Which makes me think of another um, kind of distinctive. Um, I'm married to another ordained United Methodist uh, minister who spent some time in mission work, uh, who has reminded me that uh, United Methodists, anyway, have a, a tradition that we don't go anywhere in a missionary endeavor unless we're invited by the receiving culture. And this helps us, it helps, it, it kind of acts out that we recognize that God's already at work around the world and that it, it, it protects us maybe from getting a savior complex of we're going to take Jesus to anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know every mission experience I've had, even if I've started with some of that savior mindset, I've been just overwhelmed to, to find that God's been at work here, you know, before I got here. So I, I bring Jesus with me, but it's not like Jesus hasn't been there before. Yeah. You're not saving the people. You know, Absolutely. God's right. the one doing the saving, and he's chosen to bring you in on the process. Is Agreed. Kind of the idea. Uh, which you also mentioned, so you're married to another Methodist minister. Yes. Which means the Methodists ordain both men and women into we the ministry. Do. Yes. Wesley himself... Um, well, Wesley didn't ordain women. Wesley only ordained, as far as I know, two people, uh, Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke. He ordained them and sent them to the newly born United States. Um, and so, so something else that it identifies in people of the Wesleyan tradition that we don't always like is we have this, this maverick tradition that, well, if something's not going right, then we'll kind of do it our way. Wesley himself had no intention of ever leaving the Anglican Church, mm -hmm. and yet he didn't, within his church, have the authority to ordain, yet he did. 
So he also authorized and he set, authorized and sent preachers um, in the to the colonies, um, but especially around England, and he sent women preachers. Now, for some reason, our particular denomination, and I don't know the whole history from the 1800s to now, but we decided um, in 1947, I believe, we again legalized, if that's the right word? Sure. The ordination of women. It or yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So re renewed the practice. So yes, we've been ordaining women um, in the Methodist Church since 1947. All right. Very good. Um, what about uh, maybe some, some views that the Methodists have on, say, like the Lord's Supper? Oh, sure. So um, we, we've talked some about baptism. Uh, we recognize two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We practice um, in this area, in the Southern United States, we typically uh, share the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or the Eucharist uh, the first Sunday of each month and other special services throughout the year. Uh, I went to seminary in Kentucky and in that part of the US, um, communion was generally observed once a quarter. So, which brings me to another thing that I'll just put in parenthetically. Um, Methodism, I think, tends to, to want to find and fit the culture. So my theory, um, and I haven't done any study, uh, just this is uh, anecdotal, is mm -hmm. that Methodists in Texas are more like Baptists in some ways mm -hmm. than Methodists, say, in New England. Yeah, so in, in our in our regular practices, mm -hmm. uh, but wherever we are, we we um, we observe two sacraments again, baptism and communion. Um, according to our church law and our our practice, um, ordained elders are the only ones authorized to uh, to administer the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So uh, again. For clarification, my wife Rachel is an ordained deacon, not an ordained elder. Mm -hmm. So being ordained as a deacon in the United Methodist Church does not come with a sacramental privilege. Interesting. Um, so we don't do that. And uh, this is a curiosity question yes. from my part. Do Methodist congregations get to call their own pastors or um, is there a higher governing board that sends pastors where they feel like they need to go. Oh, sure. Um, the actual, the, the basic unit uh, in the United Methodist Church. So the United Methodist is one of several Methodist bodies. In the United Methodist Church, of which I'm a part, where the, the basic unit is the annual conference. There are, I don't remember now how many in the United States and um, dozens or so of others around the world. Um, and that that's the, the basic unit of which um, it, it it, it's occupied or, or uh, overseen or, or uh, yeah, you governed, know, if you will. Governed, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, any number of local congregations within that. Um, typically, an annual conference, uh, every annual conference um, is headed uh, or chaired or led by a bishop. Bishop is not a, an additional ordination in our tradition. It's just some, some elders are selected. Um, and they are then consecrated bishops and then appointed to an area. Uh, so pastoral appointments then, um, I'm appointed as an elder, I'm appointed to a church. Our current church law says that once I'm ordained an elder, um, I'm guaranteed an appointment at a mm -hmm. church someplace, as long as I'm in good standing 
um, until I choose to retire. And now my appointment here is made by the bishop, but it's in consultation with the church mm -hmm. and with myself. So there's a consultation process, but I guess where the rubber hits the road or what it comes down to is it is the bishop's decision. Bishops like to do that because they know churches and people mm -hmm. um, in ways that fit local congregations and needs and interests and gifts of individual pastors. Yeah, very good. Well, you already mentioned that you only do mission work where you're invited, uh, but what are some of the big social issues that the Methodists are typically known for being a part of? Okay. Hmm. I, w I, I think one is our, our, uh, our emergency response um, to devastating events, natural uh, disasters around the world, I think is something we're known for. We have, in addition to our structure that, that connects us uh, in annual conferences and then among the annual conferences, um, each local church has as a part of its budget um, something that goes beyond the local church. And some of that funds our nat natural disaster and other emergency response so that when uh, a hurricane hits in Louisiana or a famine happens anywhere famines might happen, then we can instantly put out an appeal and say that every dollar given to this particular appeal goes directly to that need mm -hmm. because all the administration and handling of that is taken care of already by funds that the churches collect. This particular congregation um, has a, a, a strong history of that. Our youth have been going out in summer mission trips, um, except for the pandemic year, every mm -hmm. year for more than 20 years. We have a body of adults, of adults who are trained in emergency response. So uh, we, 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 we like to, I guess, pay attention to the needs that we see and hear around us. Yeah. Um, we think that um, one thing that identifies Methodists is our love of food. I mean, I, I've heard jokes about how like a, a symbol that represents Methodism is the casserole dish. <laughs> I think a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters and even people of other faith probably see themselves that way. Uh, so, but we, we, we take joy in supporting issues to, to, to end hunger, hunger or alleviate hunger. Yeah, no, that's good. You know, we're both here in North Texas and right. there's a significant problem with hunger in North Texas. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in fact, I've talked to several pastors who, um, they do their own food banks or, you know, one Saturday a month, they give box food away to families in the community to have right. meat or things of that nature. So it's certainly, uh, I think something that's very needed in our area. Agreed. So very good. Well, what are some reasons why someone would be interested in maybe joining the Methodist denomination? What's, uh, what's appealing about it? Um, this, uh, you know, almost anything has, I think, a good side and a bad side. One of the, one of the things that we're um, infamous for is y you will hear even Methodists and, uh, um, and non-Methodists say that Methodists just believe that God is nice, so we should be nice too. Now, we have a much deeper and firmer and much more solid theology and history than that. But I, I think that kind of 
betrays or, or presents the way that we want to present as a congregation. Um, mm -hmm. United Methodists tend to want everybody to see that we are open and accepting. I mean, our, our particular denomination within Wesleyanism started an ad campaign 20 some years ago that's kind of still stuck around that we have open hearts, open minds, open doors. And as much as I still wrestle with the superficial theology of that, mm -hmm. um, it, it does pretty well identify the way we want to come across, especially to unchurched people. We want anybody who doesn't already have a relationship with God and doesn't have a church home to feel like they could wander into a United Methodist Church and feel welcomed there and accepted um, and even invited to be a part. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, on the uh, flip side, yes. what are some, uh, I don't want to say red flags of the Methodist, but what are some things where you think, you know, as Methodists, we could really work on, you know, this or this? Yeah. Um, I think, I, I think in, in my own uh, observations of, of, of church history, it seems like in America, churches have chosen either um, to, to focus on a conversion experience, as we talked about before, or on, on a lot of, of spiritual growth, that ongoing um, growth in spirituality. The, the Methodism, I think, or, or, uh, or, or I'll call this side discipleship. So we have conversion and discipleship. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think any Christian, especially talking to a podcast, would say that there's no separation between those two. But when I was in high school, um, I had two good friends that had grown up in a Baptist tradition, um, and they they were some of the most sincere, deeply faithful people I've ever known. And they were baptized three times in the couple years I knew them, mm -hmm. because in that tradition, the conversion experience was super important. Now. In case it sounds like I'm I'm talking down about that, in my own tradition, sometimes there's no talk about conversion or making a decision for Christ at all. So um, we we sometimes look like we aren't interested in making anybody decide to accept Christ and make a profession of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes we have forgotten about that in the interest of uh, of having an intent to help people grow in discipleship. Yeah. The fallacy of that is you can't grow in what you haven't started. So That makes perfect sense. I think with the, uh, you know, I grew up in a Baptist church as well, mm -hmm. and I knew several people in high school that also got baptized a few sure. times. And uh, I think that the emphasis on conversion is good, but sometimes the overemphasis makes people think, but what if it wasn't real the last time I did it? Right. And so then they start thinking, you know, I've got to get baptized again because I know I believe now. And then they start thinking later, well, what if I didn't really believe the last time? Yes. And so one of the nice things about saying, well, look, you know, you were, you were baptized. That's, that's it, uh, is that you can then sort of hopefully from that help people understand, you know, there, everybody goes through times of spiritual drought. Everybody goes through times where they think, am I saved? Or do I believe in God or whatever? You know, it's good to question our faith, um, but we don't want to question our faith to the point of our faith crumbling. Uh, you know, we, we want to question our faith, but hopefully in doing that, we come to the conclusion, you know, based on the fruit in my life, based on 
the way I believe, based on the way I feel, based on what's happening around me, it looks like I do have that relationship with God. And so getting baptized again shouldn't be necessary, mm. but discipleship is always necessary. You know, It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for five years or 55 years, you need discipleship. Uh, you know, every Christian needs a mentor and uh, Christians who have been Christians a while, hopefully are mentoring others. I could not have said it better. So, um, well, I think that uh, uh, this gives us a pretty good overview and uh, sort of introduction into uh, the Methodist tradition. If someone was to come to a Methodist church on a Sunday morning, what kind of music would they expect to hear or oh, wow. what kind of order to the service would they expect to see? Uh, that's a very good question. And I think I would have to say, um, you'll have to visit the church to find out. I mean, for example, uh, before the pandemic, this congregation, I, I moved here during the pandemic. So that's why I referred to the church rather than, than my church or uh, we um, had two different services. One was contemporary, the other was traditional. So mm -hmm. in one, we had a band. In the other, we had a piano player and a choir. Um, we now have one service and we have, uh, you know, various instrumentation and in, in the service we usually have some hymns and some more contemporary music. I'm blessed to have a 25 year old on staff so if we sing something from the 70s, 80s, 90s or even 2000s, I have somebody to look over and say, hey, is this an old song or not? Because <laughs> I don't know where the line is. So um, typically though, we'll have some order, some liturgical order of worship, mm -hmm. um, regardless of what kind of music we have. Having said that, you can find, if you're in the United States, um, within reach, that you can find a United Methodist Church that will have a service that is ordered very much like any non-denominational church. Mm -hmm. So. That makes sense. And uh, so I had a friend growing up who was Methodist. Okay. And I think if I remember correctly, they oftentimes uh, recited a creed at the end of their worship service. Do you guys okay. do that? Is that still a thing that the Methodists do? Or It is. In fact, um, we, we don't always. Mm -hmm. Although when, when I've been pastor and led services for a while in which we didn't have a creed, I would hear about it from some folks. So um, we just recently shifted from saying the creed early in the service to saying it as a, res a congregational response after the message. And so the service is nearer the end the than the beginning, but the confession of faith or the affirmation of our faith is then it, it's used as uh, kind of the, the first steps towards energizing us to go back out into the world. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah. we typically have a creed. Very good. Well, um, I really appreciate your time today. I know that those who are watching or listening uh, appreciate your time and getting to learn from you a little bit about the big picture of the Methodist denomination. Uh, so, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Oh, absolutely, Scott. It's It's been my, uh, my pleasure and a, a privilege to be a part of this. Well, for those of you guys at home, uh, as always, we appreciate your uh, taking the time to watch or listen, and we will see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast.